Hello, and we are back on the Lunk Radio Communique. It's February 21st, 2009. I am your host, Jackson Meredith, joined once again by... Brian. Andrew. Steve. And we want to talk more about some environmental issues today, which is something that we haven't really got a chance to touch on yet here on the Communique. In particular, we're sort of looking at this article written by Don Fitz titled production side environmentalism can we produce less and consume more now bear with us a little bit the the jargon gets a little thinner after after that kind of chunky title there i just want to start with an introduction here from the article i'm going to read what's maybe my favorite paragraph from fitz here since world war ii and especially since the 1960s the United States has witnessed a massive overproduction of what is profitable and an obscene shrinking of what is needed. There has been a mushrooming growth of nuclear weapons and other war toys that nobody can eat, wear, or live in. Being able to get from here to there has been replaced with traffic jams and commercials telling us how happy we are to consume individual automobiles. The construction industry has shot up as buildings last fewer years. Food epitomizes simultaneous overproduction and underconsumption as Americans are increasingly obese and less nourished. Clearly, production can go up while meaningful consumption goes down or stagnates. But could the opposite be true? I thought it, I thought it was interesting because you seldom hear it brought up, you know, what can the factories and the producers be doing to counter this? Because usually... Most of it, like he says in the article, is projected onto us, the consumers. Um, it's it's our problem, and it's something that we need to, you know, and, and we do. But I think that uh, this is one of the first times I've heard it addressed. You know, what what can the producers be doing? Well, to kind of go into the politics here, was it uh, Mussolini that said fascism can be more described as corporatism, mm-hmm. and really corporations are extremely good at hiding what they're doing. We don't even think about what corporations are doing behind the scenes in our daily lives, and I think that's true in environmentalism, too, because you don't really think about the corporate responsibility, and it's not really a social issue. It's not really represented in our culture at all. But at the same time, I'm, I'm a little worried that the article kind of demonizes green technologies, which, you know, I think can be part of the solution in reducing our consumption while maintaining a high quality of life. And so I think to a degree he's, he's scapegoating uh, green, new green technologies. And I, and I can see some of his points about, you know, like buildings that only are built to last 20 years now, they're, they're talking about now. And that, that kind of thing is, is pretty crazy, the built-in obsolescence. But... I'm wondering about the question of, you know, what kind of employment will people have if there is, uh, an, as he suggests, maybe a 90% cut in, in production. You're bringing up a, a lot of points. One of those, I, I do want to address the employment one. Mm-hmm. But first off, I think he does make a valid criticism of technology uh, when he talks about the, the ineffectivity of green technology. I mean, even calling it a technology itself is a little bit misleading because green technology seems more than anything to be a, a, pro- a byproduct of our, of our industrial system. It's never been a focus to be 
ecologically sustainable. And when one of the points he makes in this article is that you can fit a building with light bulbs that are going to be more energy efficient and you knock it down in 20 or 50 years, Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean anything. You've just put heaps and heaps of waste into the system. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he very fairly represents that any sort of green technology is ridiculously outweighed by the amount of waste that we have in this culture. We should back up just a little bit. We can't assume that everyone listening to this has, has read this article yet. If you'd like to read this article, Production Site Environmentalism, it's, uh, this, is, this article we're discussing is actually a transcript of a talk that he gave, which was first published on the Green Left Weekly website out of Australia. But you can also find it on our Conquering the Divide message board at lunkradio.org. To sort of go back to this, 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 this part that Steve was mentioning about, about him sort of, sort of being very critical of what he calls consumer side environmentalism, Fitz had this say, to say, corporate environment, corporate environmentalism is consumer side environmentalism. Make your dollars work for the earth. Buy green. Purchase mm-hmm. this green guga instead of that ungreen gadget and feel guilty about driving your car. Mm-hmm. This is sort of what Steve was talking about here a minute ago. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the main points in the article that I thought he made <clears throat> was with the, the democratic control. Um, he's talking about having um, control democratically by those in the community and those in the surrounding areas of what, what is being produced and how it's produced. And I think that's one of the most important things because we're, I think we, to to enforce responsibility onto corporations, mm-hmm. we're not going to see it mm-hmm. um, unless we do see some of this this democratic control. Yeah, I think you're really right there. And he talks about a democratic economy, which I think uh, economic democracy is what we need a lot more of. We've seen increasing disparity and lack and powerlessness by growing portion of the population and at the same time increasing power of corporate elites and and almost deification of corporate elites uh, you know the the pay scale uh, you know the typical CEO makes over 400 times the amount of the typical worker and so it's like the typical CEO makes as much as more than most Nebraska towns yeah. as an individual <laughs> makes more than the entire average community in Nebraska and that to me it's it's yeah that, that kind of disparity is criminal and, and uh, to me you know obviously the the monetary measurements are kind of abstractions but what you can take away from that is that they have more control over resources uh, through through those monetary means than we do as as even a community See, these individuals and corporations have that control. And to me, how he kind of addressed this was uh, the personalization on the consumer end of need. Now, you don't have needs as a society, as a community. You don't think that way. Think about personally. What do you need? And that's kind of the, the consumer aspect of it. You don't think about, well, is is the workplace you go to being environmentally conscious? Are these any these institutions being environmentally conscious? Think about what you can do as a consumer and just within your own household and within what you drive. It's kind of a limitation of the scope of a person's thinking is kind of what he's getting at, I believe. This this does sort of filter right back into the distinction that Fitz makes throughout his article 
between what he terms consumer-side environmentalism, buy a hybrid car, replace all the light bulbs in your house with compact fluorescence, with what he terms production-side environmentalism, which is about making changes on a systemic level and putting a lot more responsibility on those with huge systemic power. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. me, to kind of bring this back, I didn't quite close my point, but on the consumer side where you have an, an immeasurably small amount of the resources as an expenditure as a person, yet these CEOs are making ridiculous amounts of money, and they have ultimately control of the resources and control of what you're going to see as a consumer. So really to put the responsibility on the person who doesn't have that social control is ridiculous. I think that's basically the point he's making throughout this essay. And that we need to hold these institutions responsible for these decisions they're making basically on our behalf. I was just kind of wondering what everyone's thoughts are on how we can go about um, achieving more control, democratic control. And uh, if anyone had any ideas on how, how our community could go about achieving something like that. Well, I think from a green perspective, I think the what the greens hopefully bring to the political equation is the whole idea of holistic thinking that helps us make better decisions environmentally at all levels, that is, as a consumer, as a producer, and that become a part of our way of seeing the world, thinking holistically. And we live in a society where the, in the university the disciplines are split up and they're turf areas of turf where they fight to make sure nobody uh, crosses the line into their little part of the universe that they are experts in. And there's some of that breaking down now. The University of Nebraska at Lincoln is trying to trying to promote more cross-disciplinary study and, and efforts. But for, for decades, we have been our, our way of thinking has been fragmented. Well, by, to me, you're kind of saying uh, that instead of sort of kingdoms, it would, you want sort of a, an intellectual community, the educational community and the people that it was kind of what you're focusing on who are studying these things need to be a network. They need to be connected. I think you need, yes, uh-huh. I think you need to back up a half step here. You've just championed something called ho- holistic thinking, but that's not mm-hmm. a very widely known word. Can you define holistic? Holistic is trying to look at our world at all the levels concurrently and in all the, in integrating all the different disciplines into a common framework so that even as a child, you know, and it's based on the, all the levels of being uh, from the physical to the biological to the psychological to the social to the cultural and to the transcendent, which is everything we don't know. And and if you look at the structure of an atom, the structure of the entire universe, it's it, it it's built. The atoms are built in up to six valence levels. And so if we if we can begin to channel our thinking into the framework of a, a concentric model, integrating all the different disciplines into one holistic model that's looking at sustainability as the key issue. Um, and, and trying to make life more sustainable, uh, I, I think that we begin to move in a way that we have a new lens in our minds that we can make good decisions. For instance, you know, like if this guy, if, they, if, if we made houses in the suburbs right now to last 500 years, that would be a nightmare because we have, our, our entire communities are designed to fail 
because they're so sprawling urban areas where you have to drive to get anywhere. We don't want to solidify what, what, right. what, where we are now. But if we're thinking holistically, I think we can make good decisions, not only uh, you know changing the, uh, into the right light bulbs that cut energy consumption to one-third or less, but also to design communities. Basically making make, decisions... Uh, in a reasonable way on all levels. Right, you were talking right. about the, mm-hmm. the valence in the yeah. atoms. Yeah. Uh, people don't know what valence is, but if you compare it to, uh, say, uh, our stellar sort of area, yeah. it's like planets around the sun. Yeah, it's just exactly. different levels. Yeah, yeah. And you need you obviously need to consider these things at all the levels. The solar system where all these... Yeah, they're the the planets going around in circles uh, in different around the in sun. different orbits in different orbits. But and, I yeah, I do think he made an important point when he was talking about city planning. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go back to the democratic aspect of that, we have no say in city planning as as individuals. We really we can say our word, but when it comes down to it, uh, we don't get to make any of those decisions. And solidifying a, a city when it's really built around consumption and waste would be a very bad thing. But Mm -hmm. what he talks about here is doing it for human needs and Mm -hmm. in effective and ethical ways. Mm -hmm. And he uses the example of of going out and doing a couple of activities at once and having your sort of uh, resource centers and the places you want to go sort of distributed enough that you don't have to make extremely long trips. The Mm -hmm. way our cities are Mm -hmm. set up now... Uh, resource centers and uh, purchases are extremely centralized. So people have to go out of the suburbs and they have to travel for miles to get to places and waste fuel and then take trips back. And anything you need at your home, you're going to have to transport that long distance. It's extremely inefficient in that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, in in the city of Omaha, people in North Omaha in the in the ghetto have to drive many miles just to get the basic necessities of life the food for the for their uh feeding their families and so yeah it goes both ways it sometimes now more and more the 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 key consumer goods are only found in the suburbs and so yeah that's right and so yeah everything is disjointed by the profit system i think I, I, you know it just seems like that is at the root of a lot of our problems, the short-term profit being more important than the long-term health of the system. And that's what holistic thinking is about, looking at the long-term health of the overall system and all the parts of it. And if we allow some parts to be totally uh, a cancerous within our environment, then it's going to drag down other parts of the system. And I think that's what we find when we when part of our system is poorly designed, it, it causes ripple of ne- negative ripple effects throughout our society. Now, I would con- kind of compare what he's doing in this essay to what we're doing as a group here. He's making a counterpoint to the common argument. He's representing mm-hmm. a side that's not commonly seen, and he's making an argument uh, against only looking at things from consumer side and looking at it from who's actually responsible, who bears the greatest burden of weight. Not that we ultimately, even in a rational society that's built around human needs, wouldn't need to be considered as consumers. Now, I want to back it up again here just a little and see if I'm I'm understanding how you're defining holistic here correctly. I mean, I, I would say this article in some ways is thinking in a very holistic manner where it is tackling things in a very broad way where he's... I mean, obviously there's an emphasis on 
ecological sustainability mm-hmm. throughout this article yeah, is, yeah. is obviously the goal. Like but he's 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 tying into it a criticism of militarism. Absolutely, and that's very important. I, I think he does a good job on that. Yes, and he yeah. I mean he's you know ultimately ending war would be a huge yeah. step toward yeah. preserving the resources of the planet, very and it's good, also yeah. about transforming this. You know, agribusiness empire with its genetically modified foodstuffs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I another important point you made was just simply cutting out the parasitism in the medical industry, insurance yeah, yeah, companies. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I mean, ending ending this nightmarish privatized healthcare system ties into his environmental plan. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it seems like he he really does have a holistic way of looking at it. I thought it was interesting that he, he he seemed to implicate the military as the biggest offender when it comes to when it camp, comes to environmental mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, environmental uh, catastrophe. He made a fantastic mm-hmm. point, and he said that the military is using almost ten percent, nine point eight percent of the GDP, the gross domestic product, basically the the resources of our country, and that is the industry, if you will, that uses that singularly to destroy. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to quote this here, his first paragraph on militarism. The military is the only sector of the economy where emissions of greenhouse gases can be reduced by greater than 100%. This is because militarism is the only type of activity whose primary purpose is destruction. Now what that means, obviously with more than 100%, the idea is if you just if you bomb a bridge, not only are you paying in resources in environmental costs to build the bomb and to pay for the transportation, the plane, the missile launcher to deliver the bomb to its target, but also down the road, the people who are losing that bridge are going to have to pay to replace it too. Mm-hmm. And obviously, our system doesn't take that into account. And when we're talking about rebuilding Iraq. What are we rebuilding it from? We're rebuilding it from destroying it in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's that's really, I mean, the two-party system in the United States, I've yeah. never really hear, yeah. heard either party address militarism or the military as an offender right. um, when it comes to the environment. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's uh, I, know, I know I've heard the Green Party um, address that military aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, the Green Party puts an emphasis on environmentalism, uh, but they haven't really been a significant political force in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, do, does everyone think that it will take something like an environmental catastrophe in order for consciousness to be We're raised? already among environmental catastrophes. But is that what it's going to take for a, a, an alternative party like the Green Party or some other... To me political movement. It doesn't matter what horrible thing happens in the world because the main issue is awareness. If people don't know what's going on in the world, if they can be sheltered to the point, uh, nothing nothing's going to happen. I mean, I mean, here's the thing too. I mean, over the last 15-20 years, in spite of a of, of ferocious disinformation from corporate America in particular, People are becoming aware of just how sick the planet is becoming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there is huge. I mean, consensus on on global warming and whatever else you want to bring up into it, mm-hmm. and the response to sort of co-opt this growing environmental consciousness has been 
Well, I mean, the, the response from corporate America and their, you know, their ad men, yeah. their marketers, <laughs> marketers, has been to develop what's what's come to be known as as greenwashing. Uh-huh. You know, suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, overnight, you know, British Petroleum's gas stations all got painted green, and we started seeing bunches. We started <laughs> seeing commercials with. You know, you know, lush ecosystems and cute little animals. And we care about the environment. Yes, mm-hmm. Shell is on the air talking about how they're doing their part for yeah. the environment. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what I'm really worried about is that it, it is going to take something like an environmental catastrophe for people to actually. I mean, the problem I see is that there's this general sense of apathy or just kind of a, a feeling of nihilism. Like there's nothing we can do. Who cares? You know, mm-hmm. but they don't realize. You know the nightmare that lies ahead if we don't do something. Mm-hmm. Like imagine if if there was a really serious catastrophe, you know, flooding, something like that. There are serious. Or, I mean, there have been weather phenomenons that people attribute to yeah, the climate Katrina. change. And was it El, El Nino? Yeah. Mm-hmm. As well, and on top of that, places like China, people have to wear masks because mm-hmm. the pollution yeah. is so bad. It, mm-hmm. it kills you over time. Mm-hmm. So, the, if as long as we can export these out of this country, uh, it, awareness is going to be much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they did a, a great job at sort of belittling the value of Katrina as it was going on, and the government saying, "Oh, we're, we're doing everything we can." Um, it's the same sort of thing, putting a bandaid over a gunshot wound saying, oh, we're, we're going to take care of these things, it's going to be a reactionary thing, and we're going to take care of it after the fact. We're not going to change anything so these sort of things don't happen or so that we're ready for them. We're just going to take care of it. I think, there is, I think there's a percentage of the population that realizes how serious the issue is. But you see a lot of people in the media, especially on you know, like AM, right-wing radio, where you'll hear you know, pundits like, I can remember one uh, one instance where I was listening to, uh, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with him, is, uh, I think his name is uh, Michael Savage. Michael Savage. <laughs> oh, yeah. he, was, yeah. he was boasting about how he was using a fleet of SUVs to uh, deliver his latest book that he had written. And um, one of the things that he was talking about in this book and one of the things that he commonly talks about on his show is the idea that, uh, which is basically a conspiracy theory, that thinks that scientists have this agenda, to, you know, to, to ruin the United States economically. But uh, he has this idea that the that global warming is some kind of myth. And there's a, there's a lot of people that buy into this conspiracy theory that you know the scientific community is against the United States and they're they're perpetuating this this myth of global warming. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, it's amazing how many people buy into that. Mm-hmm. It's really though it's just a loud, obnoxious minority. I mean, the majority of the population really does understand that global warming is real and global warming needs to be dealt with. And it's really more a question of politicians in Washington in particular who are preferring window dressing solutions that will allow mm-hmm. business to continue as usual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they want to continue. They want to continue business as usual. They want those smokestacks to keep billowing at full capacity. But for the sake of PR... They've painted the plant green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing. You really do have to be crazy to make those sort of statements because even though the scientific community is is rather more, um, is going to be more middle class and more trained and have more interests in 
in industry, they're still basically universally against pollution. These sort of standards, uh, they come out with um, studies, unless you're getting actual industry propaganda, it's pretty universal consensus that global warming is happening and we are destroying the planet. Yeah, pretty pretty much the only scientists who argue against global warming and humanity's impact on global warming are on the payroll of ExxonMobil. Mm-hmm. And even they have had to tone, tone it down over the last few years because the consensus has just grown so mm-hmm. rapidly and so powerfully against that propaganda. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. just sort of conciliatory, trying to sweep it under the rug. Oh, we realize there's a problem now. We're trying to fix it. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what I don't understand is even, I, obviously, the scientific consensus, consensus says that global warming is occurring and humans are playing a role in it. Um, but what I don't understand is even if even if this conspiracy theory held any water, if uh, if there really wasn't any global war- warming occurring, um, shouldn't shouldn't we still be concerned about pollution? I mean, pollution has been shown to uh, have adverse health effects on people. I mean, this is something that we've known for a long time. How, how the pollutants that are released by these factories into the air and into the water are affecting people's mm-hmm. health. So it, to me, you know, global warming is part of it, but it also has to deal with that. And that also ties into, you know, in the article when he's talking about the health care, this is obviously going to increase health care costs in this country. One of the, you know, one of the, the largest polluters and one of the last countries to, uh, or actually we haven't actually signed the, Kyoto, Kyoto, Kyoto protocols. No, there's Mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of just callousness in that anti-global warming uh, warming movement, because even if you don't believe that we're creating extremes that are entirely unnatural, we're still increasing the temperature of the planet. We're still melting the ice caps and creating conditions that are horrible for us to exist at all. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can say that. Well, it's just the ebb and flow, but if we're adding it to it, we're, if we're making our conditions worse, we should probably stop in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, another one of the uh, offenders that he brings up in the article is the food industry, and this was this was uh, important to me because I I do uh, I am a vegetarian, and I think that uh, that mm-hmm. um, at least um, moving away from eating as much meat would definitely be something of value for the United States, and not only for um, ethical reasons, but also for ecological reasons, and he talks about how the um, the food industry, especially the the rearing of cattle, has such a detrimental effect on the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, the UN actually said that um, the cattle rearing generates more global warming greenhouse gases um, than transportation, all of our cars and everything. So it's an even bigger offender than mm-hmm. most people are aware of. Mm-hmm. And um, he didn't really go much into, you know, vegetarianism or having a more uh, uh, changing the Americans' diets. But that's something that I thought I could kind of extrapolate on mm-hmm. and bring up. Yeah, but um, mm-hmm. uh, also, he did note it just once in passing that we grow eight to times eight, eight to ten times as much grain to produce a pound of beef protein as we would get just yeah. from the grain itself mm-hmm. it's it's been shown that um, to produce one pound of meat 
that the the cattle have to consume uh, sixteen times uh, that in grain. So this is something that uh, could affect the world hunger issue. Also, when, when we're producing we're not all even... of this grain, that's just going to produce you know sixteen times less than the amount of food that's put in. And that, to the that doesn't even address what he kind of talks about is meaningful consumption, because obviously eating red meat isn't as good for you as eating grains and eating the hormones in the meat and eating the meat that's going to clog up your arteries and kill you is probably <laughs> not as good as having grain to feed the entire planet. Mm-hmm. And obviously besides even just that, we also have there's, the, there's also the matter of how much water. I mean, all the cattle mm-hmm. we're raising... Yeah. are really the leading consumers of the fresh, drinkable water on the planet, too. Yeah. And the pollutants from from the manure and the yeah, wastes, yeah. I mean, and the, the fertilizers and everything else, uh, polluting water systems. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so, yeah, I think that the food industry is also one that's largely ignored. I mean, when we think about pollution and global warming and things like that, we're thinking about you know, transportation, but... What was really good about this article is that he's bringing up some of these that aren't mentioned at all. Mm-hmm. I'd like to paraphrase some of his talking points on food. I mean, obviously, you have to mention I mean, the way we the way we grow food. I mean, the huge agricultural equipment involved, mm-hmm. all the machinery that has to be built, and all the oil that fuels that beast. I mean, chemical fertilizers and pesticides, a lot of which are also oil-derived, mm-hmm. all the research that goes into creating those things, genetically engineered seeds, its research, and it, from a labor perspective, how cutthroat corporations like Monsanto have an entire team of lawyers and quote-unquote seed police, which actually have to go out, go out and intrude on farmers to protect the copyrights and the mm-hmm. patents on their product. Mm-hmm. I mean, the... In- he notes that the entire chain of food processing can account for up to 99% of the cost on some products. Mm-hmm. And if, that's, if that seems kind of bizarre to you, the average morsel of food travels 1,400 miles from farm to fork. Which mm-hmm. just seems incredibly ridiculous to me. It mm-hmm. seems like a lot of the food that we eat could be grown and raised here in the community. Mm-hmm. And I'll use mm-hmm. one example. I've got Steve to my left here drinking some of my apple juice. And if you study the bottle on the apple juice, it tells you that the concentrate was shipped from China. Oh, I, yeah. I don't think they even grow a lot of apples in China. Chances are the apples are probably grown somewhere else in this hemisphere, shipped to China to be processed into concentrate, put into a bottle of juice, and then shipped back here for us Rehydrated. to drink. Even though, you know, we, we, do, we do actually grow some apples here in Nebraska, but right. the, the yeah. apple juice on our shelves in Lincoln, Nebraska, is from somewhere to China back to here. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, the reasoning for that, as far as I'm aware, is because of labor costs, right? right? They, want, they yeah. want to ship yeah. it we out to where the that. labor's cheapest mm-hmm. and exploit these people. And mm-hmm. then ship it back, and they can save money. All that way. huge environmental costs. Yeah, yeah, all, yeah. Huge environmental costs. If you look, if you go to Open Harvest and you buy uh, apple juice from an orchard here in Nebraska, it's so much more expensive. And it's I just, just completely I just senseless. Under, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> <laughs> 
It just it just doesn't make sense to me. Of Why? course, there's there's also the point where the huge corporations that are sending bushels and bushels of apples by the boatload to China to get pressed into juice and shipped back here full of preservatives, of course, because it's been so it takes kind of a while for that <laughs> process to go down. You know, a lot of these corporations have such power and such influence that they also can draw huge government subsidies to yeah. yeah, make their pro- yeah. their end product quite yeah, a lot cheaper export, artificially yeah, anything than Anything we can be. export, including our apples, uh, you know, it, they, they get subsidies. It, it always things. makes me wonder why it why it's cheaper. You go to a restaurant and you drink glass after glass of some sort of soda packed with corn syrup and preservatives and massively produced substances... <laughs> And that's and it costs three times as much to get a glass of fresh juice. And the th- yeah. here, I mean, the thing too. I mean, I have, I've, you know, I work in food service, and obviously a lot of my coworkers are lifers in that field. You know, I heard from a friend once. You know, he worked at Burger King. The most expensive, the the biggest expense to the company in selling you that fountain drink for a dollar twenty is the material that went into the cup. Mm-hmm. I mean that mm-hmm. that that corn syrup. Concentrate that they add carbonated so water to that stuff is that stuff is basic is next to nothing. It's just yeah. almost free. And it, well, yeah, they're subsidized. <laughs> yeah, this only makes sense if you're thinking about it in terms of money, which is an abstraction. Yeah, I, I should note. Point. Yeah, if, if you're if you're actually looking at things tangible things like labor, um, costs to the environment, costs of fuel, everything like this. Then it, it just looks incredibly ridiculous. This is the viewpoint I'm looking at it from. But if, if you're looking at it for money, it makes sense. So, yeah, we can ship it over there, have these um, low-paid, um, sub-poverty wage slaves do the labor for us and then ship it back. Yeah, it's going to save us costs. But, but, but look at the extra labor, the extra transportation, everything that went into that. I mean, you've just turned this something very simple onto something huge. And there's additional reasons to ship it out of the country. You ship it somewhere where either the standards are lower for pollution or you also simply don't have to care about those people or the country that you're ruining. So not only is the labor cost horrible for exploiting the people, you're also destroying their environment at the same time. I should note that we are already five minutes past the middle of the show. There's quite a lot to talk about here today. <laughs> and I, I made a big point here that I'm, I wanted to go over, that essentially the more waste you produce, the more profits you're getting. The more product that you're running through people, the more money you can demand from them. It's kind of a, mm-hmm. a simple equation I came up with there, that waste equals profits. <laughs> Which, I don't know if you're, you're sort of discussing the idea of planned obsolescence here. If this is sort of what you're that, getting yeah, into. Yeah, it's kind of an overarching thing about yeah. planned obsolescence. Mm-hmm. Would you like to offer a bit of a definition on planned obsolescence, which is another kind of jargony term we're throwing out here today? Yes. Well, he made a point in here, and he was talking about stoves, mm-hmm. but you can talk about vacuums or you can talk about anything. It, whether you buy one of them in your lifetime and it lasts you your entire life, or you buy five of them and you have to repeatedly buy them, and it goes back to what he was talking about, meaningful consumption. And by lowering the quality of a product, you necessitate that consumers buy more in quantity of that product. Well, just to to back this up a little bit again, you're talking about the idea of meaningful consumption, and you're talking about, I mean, as far as the, the economists for these corporations are concerned... 
this economy only stays afloat by making people buy stuff continuously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, you know, especially after World War II, it became an emphasis on making products <clears throat> fall apart quickly to make the consumers run out and buy another one. Mm-hmm. And he gave the example here. You know, I mean, there was a, there was a point, you know, where appliances were meant to last decades. And he says, you know, if you if you got a fifty year marriage, you need to have a stove. You you used to you bought a stove, but now in this era of planned obsolescence, stoves are manufactured to basically fall apart after ten years. So that same couple together for fifty years now has to buy five stoves. Now, what's interesting is I've looked at many many products and. They're extremely durable. They're made out of high-quality materials, but there's one thing wrong with them. Over and over again. It's put together with poor-quality screws. It's made with one part that's eventually going to go wrong. And you can easily extrapolate this to the automobile industry. How many things can go wrong on a car? You can't even count them. You have one $15 tertiary part fail and your $20,000 machine won't start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The same thing goes with computers or any, any sort of other appliance that you can get that's massively expensive. Now, we, we're seeing a trend here, and I made a huge point here, repairs don't happen. We're moving towards computers that are like a laptop, which are more integrated. You can't repair them. You can't open them. You can't put new parts in them. It mm-hmm. stops working. You throw the entire thing away and get a new one. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's really been, I mean, that's sort of been the attitude with computers to a large extent all along, aside obviously from the subculture of geeky guys who like to take their computers apart. <laughs> I mean, the general population doesn't know how to fix a basic computer problem. And you end up being forced to run out and buy a new computer. But even, even if you're a knowledgeable computer person, after so many years, you eventually have to go out and buy another one. This is a different version of planned obsolescence. It's not necessarily that personal computers are primed to disintegrate after so many years. But the issue with personal computers is, as obviously we become more and more dependent on them for more and more intensive needs, mm-hmm. the processor and the memory become inadequate for what we're doing with them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been noted, I think, I saw this... And then maybe it was like the story of stuff video mm-hmm. that I think Steve directed me to. Mm-hmm. You know, they make a point of making each generation of processor chips for computers a different shape than the previous one so that they won't fit into existing ah, motherboards. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's wrong. But, you know, obviously, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about computers and I'm not exactly sure about this, but honestly, you take one apart and, I mean, a lot of the parts in a computer don't seem like they've changed very much. I mean, I think the power supply that powers a computer up is basically the same appliance it was in computers from 20 years ago. Well, the thing is, mm-hmm. the conduits that they plug into haven't changed at all. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the computer tower, the tower itself, the box that all the components go into, those haven't changed much in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, basically it comes down to you basically need a new power chip, a new processor chip, and a new... RAM memory every mm-hmm. so many years mm-hmm. when your computer becomes obsolete, but they're built in such a way that they can't be readily swapped out. Mm-hmm. Where you end up having to buy a new power supply mm-hmm. and a new tower and a new motherboard, even if they're exactly the same as the parts in your old computer. I'm going to take this to a parallel. You get a new cell phone, and it needs a new power supply. There are 
I've seen <laughs> seven kinds of power supplies to a phone. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you need to supply DC current to a phone? You need a positive and negative pole. <laughs> and they have standardized plugins for appliances across the board. Yet for cell phones, they have invented new ways to put power plugs into an appliance mm-hmm. over and over again. <laughs> so th- there, there's a way to sort of diversify things. So you have to buy needless appliances and have seven different varieties for any sort of appliance you might have. Kind of an application of that is when we, my wife and I lived in Rome, Italy. We lived in an apartment that it had been an apartment before Columbus left, uh, sailed for the new world. And so we... Which was 500 years ago, if you don't know your history. (laughs) Our apartment was literally 500 years old, but we had... Uh, five different kinds of electrical outlets that are wow. from the <laughs> from over the century that we've had electricity. So there'd be some challenges that we face if we build to, things to last. And one of the challenges I wanted to ask you guys about, since you're you know y- younger people, I'm toward the end of my my line on this planet. Uh, These are token geezer. Token geezer. What about employment in this economy where you you would make things to last and then um, then you don't have to make anything more because it's well except for food there are some pass throughs and maybe maybe but what what do you think about employment because now even the unions fight to keep wars going in order to keep making more missiles and keep those missile plants open how do we build an economy that keeps people gainfully employed or do we need people gainfully employed? This is employed? actually an area that I don't think he touched on as no, much. Yeah, I think he was focusing a... more on the environment than labor. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. I think you have similar aspects to labor uh, where he's talking about disposable uh, commodities. You have disposable employment. When they talk about job creation, the reason you need to create new jobs is because you've been laying off so many people. I mean, mm-hmm. if you if they had that sort of ethics too, you need to keep someone employed for their entire life. You actually need to take care of people. There wouldn't be any need for job creation. I have a a serious uh, issue with the term job creation because there's always useful work to be done in a society. A person exists, they have needs, and there is work to be done for them. Uh, job creation is just kind of an abstraction of of capital terms. It doesn't really mean anything. There's always labor. There's always people to do labor. And uh, people use that term uh, to say that, well, um, people wouldn't be doing anything if there wasn't needs being created by corporations. And we were talking about deifying corporations again. And I think it's true that they're represented as some sort of great providers for us. And when we talk about a society that's without corporations, that's kind of a common question you get, a challenge. What would we do without our great providers? Mm. That's, uh, I kind of, I made the comment on the board. I don't know if anybody saw it, but I was, uh, I thought that, uh, he was kind of hinting at more of a socialist solution to problems. Mm. And, uh, he never actually used the word and, um, I didn't know if he was just doing that to avoid the stigma uh, associated with the term socialism. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, really, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, democratic control of production. He's talking about um, 
producing for profit or producing for need rather than profit, mm-hmm. which are you know I I identify with all of those things. I think that that's what's important, and that's what we're going to need to do if we want to save the planet and start to live a more ethical life. Mm-hmm. But I want to go back to Steve's question, and I want to take a more direct tack on it. The, the idea is, if some of these changes that need to be implemented to attain sustainability in our society were actually taken, mm-hmm. if we made efforts toward building building things to last, I mean, it would it would really be a disaster for this capitalist right. system that we yeah, have. Yeah, I mean, you know the. The Japanese encountered this after World War II in particular. They had a standard of, of quality in their electronics that the Americans gave up on many years earlier. Mm-hmm. And they built these wonderful televisions and so forth that were built to last. And everyone in Japan bought a TV. Everyone bought a washer and dryer. And then the economy went into recession because nobody was buying yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah. So the Japanese had to learn the lesson in planned obsolescence the hard way. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you're saying that a lot of these things, like what you just mentioned, plan, planned obsolescence, you think that those are necessary for the for a capitalist system in in order to avoid these these uh, these busts where the economy just goes out. Frankly, I do, and that starts bringing us to the question: Would we rather have a Would you rather buy a new TV every five years? Or would we rather change the economic system we're living in? Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. this goes back to a point that I often try to make, is that capitalism needs destruction to exist. We were talking mm-hmm. about the military, and the mm-hmm. military goes around destroying infrastructures and mm-hmm. creating uh, things that need to be rebuilt, creating mm-hmm. needs around the world. Mm-hmm. Well, he- here's the thing. Capitalism needs growth. Mm-hmm. Always, forever, New stuff, new things, but this is a new people this is, to exploit. This is a you know this this is a limited planet. Mm-hmm. There's only yeah. so much space. Yeah. There's only so many people living on it, and there's only so much natural resources. So yeah, if you need you know if you got two hundred million people <coughs> and you want to sell two hundred million people a TV, two hundred million people buy a TV, and that's the end, and your company goes out of business unless you build a TV. That goes to hell after three years to make people buy a new TV. So you're selling 200 million TVs every three years. And mm-hmm. that's the thing about, say, the automobile industry, is cars last even too long for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So they, what they do is they supply parts that are sold at a higher cost than what they cost in the car. And then there's labor on top of that, which supports an entirely different industry. Mm-hmm. So they really they really milk their product for all it's worth in that way. And cars that exist now using the internal combustion system are ridiculously faulty. I mean, electric cars, which is possibly one of the reasons they don't even want to go into them, they don't break down like mm-hmm. an internal combustion car does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. An in- internal combustion engine essentially just shakes itself to pieces mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. time. And that, that was yeah part of the explanation in, given in the documentary Who Killed the Electric Car. Mm-hmm. You know, that the electric car was a threat to the company, in part because it made the rest of their products look bad mm-hmm. on all kinds of levels. But the other thing was, the thing the companies would really lose out on in the long term was this cartel of maintenance shops and mm-hmm. auto parts stores mm-hmm. that they feed into. Mm-hmm. So and, 
Go ahead. It seems like we've all kind of come to this, uh, or, or we're discussing now that, that um, the system of capitalism is one of the biggest offenders environmentally, but uh, I think a lot of people have this question and a lot of people kind of view it that, you know, can we, can we reform capitalism? Can we make it, can we retain parts of the capitalist system um, and implement other uh, systems and um, kind of combine the two so uh, so we can kind of mitigate the harm that's being caused. Do you think that's a viable option? I think that's an important question, whether we can reform it. I was going to make one more statement on the issue Jackson was talking about, and they, call, they tend to call that expansion. We need to expand mm-hmm, our mm-hmm. business. We need to grow it. Uh, mm-hmm. There's constant growth. You need to find new new ways to tap resources and basically take money from people. Now, the military being about 10% of the budget, like I said, it goes out and it destroys infrastructures. It makes people dependent. And then we are exporting uh, international corporations into their country to, to um, take advantage of people who have no infrastructure. They have no structure. We're bombing their country. They obviously have a broken community and have a- absolute chaos in the streets, and then we come in with all the prepackaged solutions corporations can offer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of a, a way I see of generating new need kind and expanding. Disaster capitalism, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and like Brian says, uh, is there any way of reforming that? And obviously if capitalism needs constant expansion, how do you reform that? Is, is something like... Like a social democratic solution where um, there is uh, a, uh, a provide met by the state, or, or the state provides um, some of the necessities and basic uh, uh, life support to the population while um, some of capitalism is retained, the wage system... Uh, the the inequality in in payment and things like that, which in theory uh, increase um, competition and things like that, is that is that a solution? That uh, I mean, do we do we see an increased um, concern for environmentalism in social democratic countries? I yes, I think very much so in uh, Denmark and Sweden and countries like that where. For instance, Sweden has uh, solidarity wage increases where when there's an overall societal increase in wages, the the lower paid people get paid proportionally higher, a greater percentage increase. And so there's some ways that, you know, by by designing the system to be more economically fair in the long run, that they're moving towards equity and at the same time they're they're much committed to uh trying to develop the renewable energy and energy conservation and again that's i think one of the real pluses in the economic stimulus is that there is a major package to to uh invest in energy conservation and uh renewable energy systems that will greatly reduce pollution and put people to work doing the things that are good for you know employing people at the same time uh, doing things that are good for the environment. And so I, I think that's a good... I actually kind of wonder what the value of that is when you're talking about proportionally increasing wages in a country. Now, if it goes up proportionally for everyone, you're basically just increasing the strength of that 
country's currency, which is mm-hmm. mostly useful for industrialists who are going to take advantage of leveraging their money on other countries. I mean, you may have cheaper commodities when you're buying them as a consumer outside of the country, but as as what as basically the standard of living, that doesn't really increase if you have to spend more money within your own country. You're just basically having internal inflation in that way. I mean, there, there are some humanitarian benefits to the social democratic model, but and that would be a subject for another show, frankly, but <laughs> I, I'm not sure that it really confronts this sort of cancerous capitalist impulse of grow or die. I mean, mm-hmm. Ed, Edward Abbey was quoted as saying, sort of condemning the, the capitalist mantra of growth, 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 at, by saying growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. Right, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think as long as there is like a wage system in place, there are, there is always going to be a tendency toward... Um, inequality. I mean, it's not going to be as extreme as in uh, in uh, less regulated systems. But you know, when there is that inequality in wealth, there's going to be the opportunity for certain political groups to gain the upper hand because they're going to have more wealth and more resources. And there are, there will always be the threat, um, in my opinion, that you know things will regress right. and slip back. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe these mm-hmm. groups that. Uh, um, political groups that have the interests of the wealthy may may go back on some of these reforms. Mm-hmm. As I see it, when you have wage, uh, it's always a matter of giving one person more than the other, and that's always going to be something in a competitive, predatory society to leverage against other people. That's simply the nature of a capitalist society. And in this essay, I, he makes the point of Basically, he doesn't say it flat out like Brian said, but socializing things, socializing transportation, having it for a community interest, taking care of everyone's mm-hmm. needs, and mm-hmm. healthcare just cutting out the parasitism, like I said, the people mm-hmm. that are just milking it and deciding who gets it, who doesn't, just entirely mm-hmm. cutting them out, uh, getting getting rid of the military that's basically, like you said, destroying the environment, mm-hmm. uh, just socially taking but, care of those things. But socialism is evil and it's anti-American. <laughs> That's another point I have written down here. The, the general concept of what happens when you socialize, which is kind of something I think he's going against in here, is that you're going to automatically have lower living standards and less luxuries. But he goes into this article on multiple points and says that uh, production is going to go down uh, often I think you said across the board, 80 to 90%, and yet people are going to have all of their needs met because there's already an overabundance, a surplus of goods for people at the time. It's simply that we're producing cheap plastic crap and things that that self-destruct that people don't need, and if we produced actual useful goods, people would have it. You know, and here, I mean, here's the thing, too. He's, he made this point when he was discussing buildings and how buildings aren't built to last anymore he says you know if you if you build buildings to a 500 year standard instead of a 50 year standard now he's he's saying you know we have 500 year old buildings in europe that means we know how to build 500 year old buildings well, in well, fact we've done 500 it. years ago what about a compromise what about just to a 100 year standard maybe not but just, a- <laughs> he says you know 
you, you build a building to a 500-year standard instead of a 50-year standard, and that means in the course of 500 years, you're building 90% fewer buildings. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that people are going without homes. That mm-hmm. just means that those buildings are still there, and you're just using that many fewer buildings over that course of time. And we've mm-hmm. talked about that before, that there are currently demolishing perfectly good homes yes, that's true. for no particular reason. Mm-hmm. And you really see this in the commercial and indus- industrial uh, areas that people wait 20 years on a, on a skyscraper or a building and they, they want something new. So let's tear it down and throw it away and we'll put up something bigger and better. You don't even have to talk about the residential area. That's a, that's a common thread. I mean, even if we did build things to last, there's this sort of uh, style or um, even just sort of, what would you call it, a status aspect of buildings. Our corporation has the biggest, mm-hmm. more most imposing buildings, mm-hmm. and uh, we need to be a, an icon in society, so we're going to tear down our ridiculously monstrous building and put up one even bigger. And that goes back into the psychology of competition, which is just completely normal and healthy and necessary in a capitalist society. Now, you have people who don't have places to live, yet you have office buildings, which are ridiculously huge. They're empty most of the time, and when they're filled, there are people pushing papers or worrying about stocks or things that aren't actual production for society. Mm -hmm. That's where our resources are basically going is pretty much what this article is saying. Basically, the the culture, the society we live in says that you cannot use a resource like a building if it's not for some profitable enterprise. Like, you want to, you want to move homeless people into a building that's not being used? That's against the law. Basically, Mm -hmm. the, the only way you can um, have access to a building is if you're if you're in the business of making profits and, and then giving a portion of those profits to the the leasing company. Well, I think it was demonstrated fairly well when uh, we were trying to become a nonprofit as a Lincoln Secular Humanist. By default, you're assumed to be a for-profit organization. Yeah, you're you're uh, there to take money from people. That's that's the default organization of our society. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much just assumed that well, couldn't you uh, uh, file as a uh, you can private non- but if you, if you don't file yeah. you're a for-profit organization and that's the oh, okay. purpose of your organization oh, okay huh. <laughs> we're actually coming up on the end of the hour here already <laughs> we're actually in the last minute unless we want to do another hour <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think that maybe we can touch more on the topic but uh, Maybe discuss a different aspect. Again, I think we've covered the problems fairly well. <laughs> um, solutions are... are that's where we need people There's to call There's still a lot more we material need, we need in this people, essay that we yeah, didn't even true. touch on. We need to quote the number, the station number, and have people call in and give us their ideas for solutions, and maybe we can discuss them on the air. Yeah, that's a good idea. It's 840 uh, is the... Lunk line. Lunk, lunk, lunk line. <laughs> phone number. And maybe we'll do a second part on this show then at some point in the future then. Mm-hmm. We'll sort of touch on this some more. But for now, I'm Jackson, and I want to thank Brian, Andrew, and Steve for doing this with me once again. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>